Hey there, before we get started, I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to the last episode of Season 1 of Security Sandbox. That means we'll be taking a short break before starting Season 2. There's a small extra episode after this if you're interested in what comes next. Thanks. The thing I remember was getting an email back from one of the principal consultants on the team who, you know, he had spoken at, uh, you know, a conference at one point. Um, you know, he'd spoken at Black Hat be- along with an- another member of the team. They had co-authored a tool. And his response to me was very short, very curt. It was just, uh, you know, I see a lot of hand waving here. No content of any real value. You're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this final episode of season one, Alyssa Miller joins me to talk about public speaking and cybersecurity. At the core of security conferences, or conferences in general, is the concept of public speaking. Someone gets up on a podium in front of hundreds or thousands of people and shares something. And to give a talk, you'll need something to say first. It could be a cool new technique or an innovative idea or a story. Then you'll have to submit to a call for proposals, a CFP, which is basically an application that tells the conference review board what you'd like to talk about. Next, that small group of people on the board approve it and add your talk to their conference. But too often, people with things to say may not always feel like what they have to say is important. In a sense, imposter syndrome and public speaking almost go hand in hand. On this episode, I talked to Alyssa Miller, a manager at the Information Security Services Practice at CDW. She has quite a few talks lined up over the next few months. In fact, if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, she's just given one last week. Over the next hour, we talk about her talks, how to speak to different audiences, and how to face imposter syndrome. Alyssa Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah. So you are a manager at CDW, uh, specifically in the information security solutions practice. Can you tell the audience what your responsibilities include and what your day to day is kind of like? Sure. So that information security services or solutions practice is really where we drive all of our assessment services. So traditional pen testing, application security assessments, things like that. And certainly we dig into a lot of the more advanced services, everything from you know, device security around IoT and medical devices uh, and into red teaming and purple teaming. Um, we also get into some of the advisory work where we work with our organizations at a higher level uh, just to build out you know, a security strategy. How do they take all their systems across their entire enterprise environment and secure it. So definitely, you know, that little bit of offensive security mixed with some, you know, blue team defensive security as well. And I know that you worked as a developer and then a pen tester. You've had a long career in the InfoSec space. Um, how did it go from being a pen tester to becoming a manager? What has that jump been like? Um, I mean, it's it's been interesting because uh, you know you certainly you start to lose connection with some of your technical skills, and so I, I you know I tend to miss that from time to time. But at the same time, it's really nice to be able to shape a lot more of the strategy and how we're going to really build out services and things like that. Um, are you ever able to do anything like technical on the side? Um, yeah, I mean, I still certainly on my own, uh, we'll mm-hmm. dig into some things and, um, you know, I, I definitely try to play around with people's, uh, you know, other people's exploits and write-ups and, and mess around in Cali a little bit and understand a little bit more about some of these exploits. If nothing else, then I can at least, uh, talk to them, uh, you know, with more intelligence when I'm with a customer. So are there any challenges that you face as a manager that your team or teams of engineers might not always know about? Sure. I mean, of course, as a manager, there's a lot of the just the political side of things um, within the organization, you know, and and honestly, the way I look at it, being a manager, I mean, that's really my job, right? I mean, I'm there to make sure that these awesome people who are super smart and who work on the team have the things that they need and that they can f- do their jobs day to day without having to worry about all of the other ancillary things that come up just as part of being in a a large organization. And so, 
you know, to that end, I, I shield them when I can. I try not to hide things from them either. I'm a, as a manager, I tend to be pretty open about the things that are going on and my personal feelings toward it. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we all work for the same company and I, I want them to understand where things are headed. But if I can kind of run that interference and, and fight for them when they need something, that, that's really, I, I think that's a, a large part of my job as a as a leader is just doing that type of thing. Um, I know that you are also a speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you give a lot of talks uh, in InfoSec conferences, um, such as you have a couple coming up. Could you share what those are and where you will be giving? Yeah, that? sure. Uh, the uh, the nearest one here is actually at a conference called SimConnect Live. So SIM stands for Society of Information Management, and it's a community of uh, IT leaders. So we're talking directors and above, uh, you know, a lot of uh, C-suite members and so forth. Um, so I'm going to be talking to them in a track that's really about uh, establishing uh, ethics and digital trust. And so I'm going to be speaking in that track specifically around what organizations can do to kind of repair a lot of the damaged trust with consumers. We've seen, you know, whether it's Facebook or it's Google or whoever, we've seen all the issues, uh, all the compromises and breaches and privacy issues. And so talking to them, what can they start to do to repair that? How can they do things differently? Um, following that, uh, just a couple of weeks later, I'll be speaking at Circle City Con. And there I'll be delivering a talk that I'm actually delivering a number of times this year. And it's really around how can we think about security differently? And I like to use the metaphor of how medieval castles were constructed. You know, if you look at a medieval castle, the way that they built it was they started in the middle with this thing they call the keep. And in the keep is where you put all those most critical things. It's where, you know, the Lord or whoever, you know, was a resident of that castle had their residence. Um, you know, all the jewels and other, you know, anything that was critical to them was stored there. And that was a really fortified line of last defense. And then they built all the other defenses out from that. But if you look at what we've done from a security perspective, from the, the very first time we started opening up multi-user systems, we've always defended from the perimeter inward. And we, you know, even though we acknowledge things like the need for security and depth or the concept of kind of the, the crunchy outer layer and the gooey inside and trying to make it not so gooey, we still always start at the perimeter and work backward. We never start at, okay, what is most important to us from the business what do we need to protect the most and then build out those defenses so that even if someone breaches that castle wall, which might be our users or it might be that, you know, network edge, the data or those other key capabilities that are our assets stay protected. And so we go through that discussion and we talk about it at an enterprise level. And I also bring it down to even when we're in the throes of software development and how can we think about it even in a dynamic environment like DevOps, how do we start with understanding what it is that we need to be most aware of and then defend that from the inside out? And your third one is with the Diana Initiative? Yeah, is that's that right? the that's a third one that I have coming up that'll be later as part of Hacker Summer Camp out in Vegas. Um, Diana Initiative is really cool. It's an opportunity for uh, enabling women in security in particular, uh, to have a stronger voice and to be in, in a environment that's safe for them, especially if they've not had a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, say a hacker conference before. Maybe they've never spoken before. Um, you know, it, it's a, a, an environment that encourages that type of involvement. Um, you know, if people have been paying attention at all to the news and a lot of the studies, Recently in the infosec space, we've seen that women only make up somewhere between 12 to 20% of the entire workforce, depending on how you define women in security in the first place. And so Diana Initiative is just one attempt to try to make the information security space more welcoming to women and other underrepresented groups. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here uh, between these three things. Um, 
So let's go back to your first talk. Um, your one that's more geared towards executives and it's about repairing damaged mm-hmm. trust. Um, so what are some ways of repairing the t- damaged trust? Um, I know that corporations use a lot of different methods in terms of like how they say sorry, like whether it's like Uber giving you like a free ride or like, you know, someone giving you like a coupon, like what are, where, where did those methods come from? So let's start with what not to do, if you don't mind. And the example I'm going to use is uh, everybody's favorite whipping boy, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you know, we all know that Facebook has a, a terrible track record, especially in the last couple of years around privacy. And, you know, there's a reason there's lots of privacy violations and other things. There's a reason that, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg's had to go in front of Congress a couple times. And, you know, so, you know, very recently they just had their developer conference. And in that conference, I don't know how many people saw it, but he starts his keynote by trying to make a joke about Facebook's privacy. This is the, the next chapter for our services. I get that a lot of people aren't sure that we're serious about this. (laughs) I know that we don't exactly have the the strongest reputation on privacy right now, to put it lightly. And and it bombed spectacularly in the talk. And, you know, of course, he he felt the, uh, the backlash from it on all the social interwebs. But... You know, even beyond that, there's plenty of video and, you know, screenshots of him standing in front of a large screen that says the future is private. Well, that's great, but it carries no credibility right now with Facebook. You can't just turn around and say, we've ignored privacy for how many years and now suddenly we're going to, we're all about privacy. It doesn't work that way. And so what I'm talking about with these executives and, you know, high level IT leaders is really how do you do this in a credible way? And it starts with, of course, security, number one. I mean, if, if we're not taking the right initiatives to defend the, you know, the assets that we own and looking at, you know, consumer data that we're trying to monetize in the business world today as an asset and protect it just like we would our trade secrets or anything else, we're never going to make any progress. So that's kind of a foundation. But then it builds out into like our privacy policies. We have to stop looking at, well, we have a privacy policy, so therefore we're protecting privacy. No, we're not. We're, we're writing these privacy policies that are impossible to even read and understand. And they leave everything so wide open that, you know, and that's intentional so that the organizations can shift and move dynamically and not have to rewrite their policy or their private privacy policy. Um, so I go into, explaining to them, you know, strategies that they can use for making those policies more understandable, how they can use more uh, plain English language um, to help uh, their users understand them. And then it's going beyond that and understanding what data are we holding in the first place? You know, let's not be hoarders, right? You know, we have this wonderful world of the cloud and this wonderful buzzword we call big data, and we can store massive amounts of data now. And the result is we store a bunch of data we don't need. Well, that's just exponentially increases the chance of compromise or privacy abuses. So let's tone that back. And then finally, it's understanding that as the person or the organization that's collected that data, you own it. And if you make that data available to your vendors or to your other, you know, business customers or partners and they misuse it, that responsibility comes back to you. Um, you know, legally or not, I don't, I'm no lawyer. I don't know all the legal ramifications there, but from a consumer expectation level, they look at you as the owner of their data and you're the one that failed to protect it. When, for instance, 500 million, you know, Facebook records end up on an AWS, some AWS server somewhere because a third party exposed it. Right. So from your Circle City Con talk, In your abstract, it's a you say you know from the moment we started to enable multi-user systems, we've gone about defending our information in all the wrong ways. So why do you think that we have this like 
outside in perspective? Why didn't we start at the like inside out? Especially since you know this concept of like building a fortress out has been something that we've done since the medieval ages. I mean, I think the biggest thing is we've always had kind of an existing system that we had to defend, right? So if we go back to those first multi-user systems and you think about what they were uh, initially, anybody could access any of the data on them. It was, these were just machines that were constructed out of nothing and, and started to, you know, we started to store data in them. And then we realized, well, maybe we need to control who has access to this data because you know, we've got multiple programmers writing different programs to access that data or to do computations with that data. And so we started thinking about that. It's like, well, okay, so let's, let's authenticate those users when they log on to the computer um, or to the, you know, computational system at the time. I mean, we're not even talking full-blown computers yet. And we, you know, so we've always just kind of taken that approach. It's easy. Because we know we've got all this stuff behind it. So let's just, let's start at the outermost portion where they enter. I mean, if you think about your own homes, we do the same thing there, right? Um, you know, when we put locks on our homes, nobody designs a house starting with the safe that they're going to put their most critical records and their cash in. You know, no, we, we build a frame to that house. We put doors on it. We put locks on those doors. Maybe we put in an alarm system. So it, it's kind of the way we've always approached things. And even when we think about it from a national defense perspective, we even define, we protect our borders. We've got a president right now who's trying to build a wall to protect the borders of the country. And yet once you're past that border, you, you have a lot freer reign to do things. And it, again, it comes down to, it's just easier to try to, or it feels easier to try to defend the border. The reality is defending the perimeter doesn't do a whole lot because we all know perimeter defenses get compromised every day. Uh, do you think there is a thought about like how much something costs and how much that is attached to it? I definitely think there's a monetary yeah. cost. Um, and sometimes I'm sure that plays into it. Um, you know, and that's where as security leaders, I definitely try to stress when I have that audience that, you know, we need to be better about attaching our security expenditures to how they enable the business. You know, traditionally, you know, a CIO or a CISO goes in front of the board to ask for money or to ask for approval on a project. And we use fear. We use, you know, uncertainty and doubt or, you know, FUD. And, you know, we, we try to sell it that way. But if I can go into the board and show them how spending money here on security is going to enable their business to do more things and to be more innovative and to make money, well, now it's easier to sell that. And in the long run, you know, we, we talk about pushing left when we think about software. And I think, you know, it's there's some common studies that people are aware of that the sooner in the life cycle of software development that you identify a bug, the cheaper it is to fix. Well, it's the same thing with security. When we build systems, if we make them, you know, by design to be more secure, we think about security in that design and then build out from there and we design that security from the inside out, it's going to be cheaper in the end because we're not in some emergency situation trying to back into having security inside our our perimeters. So with for Circle City Con, are you speaking to a primarily CISO based audience or is it more of a security engineer hacker conference? Uh, it's definitely more of an engineer and hacker conference. Um, they they do have a component as well centered around uh, executives, but I'm not actually speaking in that track. But that's where it's, you know, one of the things I think as security consultants we have to be good at is being able to take a, a low level technical message and raise it up to those high level conversations and vice versa. And so that's why as part of the talk there, I'll be getting more into the specifics of how do we do this as part of uh, software development lifecycle. As I'm developing an app or I'm working through my DevOps pipeline, how do I take these same concepts that I'm talking about with the castle and at a you know, a, a large network enterprise perspective. And how do I bring that down and apply that in the same way to developing software? 
So it's interesting that you bring that up because your talk at SimConnect Live, that's to a more executive audience. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any tips of how to either raise and go to a higher level of what you're saying? Or or do you have any tips? Do you have any tips of reaching either audience? Sure. Yeah, it's I actually glad you asked that. We had a a pretty epic Twitter thread on this a few months ago as well. And it's um you know, some of the things that I recommend to especially if you're going to be a consultant um you know, and as you're getting into more senior levels of being a consultant is to just start to expose yourself to those conversations. Um I think you know, we get so focused on the the technical discussions and technical resources how many consultants out there go out and read like CIO magazine or, you know, look at some of those websites and understand things from that perspective. And so what I encourage consultants to do is to really expose yourself to those people and to those conversations. Um, you know, I think there's at the very technical level, there's some disdain for that. Um, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of times we look at those high level manager conversations and, you know, it's not where we want to be. We're, we're technical people. And I get that. But by exposing yourself to those conversations, you start to understand the things that they're thinking about, what their motivations are. And it's not typically how can we screw over our developers or our customers. It's, you know, they've got shareholders to worry about. They've got um, conflicting priorities galore that they're worried about all the time. And they have to look at things at a very macro level. So if you can start to understand how to take a very technical finding, you know, they don't care that you were able to execute SQL injection on a login form. You know, that, that's great and wonderful. It means nothing to someone in, on your board of directors. What does matter is when you tell them, Hey, you know what? We've got this that could potentially lead to this level of risk. Mm-hmm. And by spending this amount to fix it, we're enabling these dollars to be focused later in other development areas rather than having to spend that money on incident response when someone hacks us. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting that you bring up like, you know, the word risk, like, let's say there was an engineer and they were looking to expose themselves more to these conversations. Because I think, you know, from a outsider's perspective, it might be hard to kind of just like insert yourself into these conversations, especially if you really just don't know what you're talking about. Um, How can engineers expose themselves to these conversations? So there's a few things you can do. First of all, I, I kind of mentioned already, there's a number of resources out there, magazines, other websites that are really directed at that audience that you can subscribe to for free or you can access for free. And I encourage people to take a look at those and just read through them. Um, you know, those, the people that are authoring those articles typically have lived in that same space and are speaking to that audience. And so they understand a lot of the motivations and a lot of the focus that that C-suite office is, you know, involved in. Um, you know, from there, certainly there are people you can connect to, uh, through various social media outlets. Um, you know, I encourage people not to be shy about, you know, finding, uh, you know, an executive somewhere, maybe for a smaller company, cause they're more likely to respond to you. But, uh, you know, interact with those folks and, you know, follow them on Twitter or follow them on LinkedIn and see what they're saying, see what types of content they're sharing. And now you start to get a better understanding for, okay, here's where they're looking at things. And you might even be able to interact with them to the point that you change their mind about how they're looking at something. And it's, you know, now you've started to not only understand their conversations and their motives better, but you're also doing that networking that later on helps you out as you start to move up the ranks and you want to start establishing higher level conversations. Uh, you know, now you've got that credibility of, you know, folks that you've networked with in the past. Finally, um, the, your work with Diana Initiative. Um, we talked about this earlier that you are the head of the WOSEC chapter in Milwaukee. Um, it's a chapter that's just starting. Um, how's that experience been like? Um, so far, it's been really good. Um, I'm really excited about what we're going to build here in Milwaukee. Um, you know, it, we just launched the chapter. We have not done our first meetup yet. 
But for those who are not familiar with WOSEC, it is the Women of Security. It is an organization that right now is just based on meetups, um, establishing various chapters around the globe, getting women in security together just to create an environment where we can exchange ideas. We can see that we're not alone in security. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues uh, speaks regularly at conferences, uh, Chloe Mazdagi, you know, and she talks about her experience where, you know, she felt so alone in security when she went to a large security conference that she almost left the industry. And that's the exact opposite of what we want. We want to make this industry more inclusive and welcoming because that, you know, being inclusive and making people comfortable is how you ultimately build diversity. And, you know, diversity, we can go on for days about why it's important. I don't know that, you know, anyone fully grasps it, but, you know, it is, it is crucial and we're seeing examples of it. You know, in, in today's world, if we look at things like, uh, you know, the issues that we're having right now with facial recognition, where certain facial recognition platforms can't identify the faces of people of color because they weren't in the test set. Or we look at the TSA and their scanners that are unfairly, uh, you know, uh, initiating additional screening for women of color who have certain hairstyles or headdress, uh, you know, and why? Because we didn't have diversity in our test set. And so that's why diversity is so critical in every environment is it's the world we live in. We need to be representative as we define and build systems that are going to be a part of that world, whether it's machine learning or artificial intelligence or whatever it is. And so we need that diversity. And so bringing this back to WOSEC then, you know, our goal is just to make this a comfortable place for women in security to start to network, to start to see that they're not alone, to start to do fun things, and even to build some visibility out in the, you know, the wider security community. Um, you know, I know some of the chapters get together and they quote unquote crash certain events. So they get a large group of women, you know, in security together and they go out and they attend different events and you walk in with this big contingent of women and you, you get those looks and it surprises people for a minute. And then they see, yeah, this is normal. This is, you know, they know what they're doing. In fact, most of the time they're pretty darn awesome. So, Hey, you know, and that visibility can mean a lot. Hey, don't go anywhere more on what makes Alyssa so darn awesome after this break. Speaking of stories, speaking of Chloe's story, um, I know that you have a story um, regarding imposter syndrome. Um, can you share that with the audience? Sure. So yeah, imposter syndrome is another one of the it seems to strike women harder than anybody else, but it strikes everybody in the security community to some extent. And, you know, the, the story I tell people is about my very first conference talk. So I went to a conference. I had never spoken at a conference before and I had submitted to the CFP. I got accepted and it was a, I was giving a talk on OAuth to a, um, authorization. And, you know, it was based largely on the results of uh, some pen tests I had completed recently where I was seeing that people really weren't implementing OAuth 2 properly. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, people were relying on it as an authentication framework, which it's not. It is authorization. And so my entire talk centered around how do you properly implement OAuth 2? And, you know, so there was nothing in there cutting edge or breaking. You know, it wasn't that I had a new zero day exploit. Um, you know, I'm, I don't think I've ever discovered an O day. I'm sorry. That's, I've just, that's not me, but no, I, I had found some real world examples where people just didn't understand how off two got implemented. So I put together a talk. It got accepted. I gave the talk when I, got back from the conference and, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, they released the video and I sent that video around to the folks in my practice at the uh, consulting organization I was working at at the time. And the thing I remember was getting an email back from one of the principal consultants on the team 
who, you know, he had spoken at, uh, you know, a conference at one point. Um, you know, he'd spoken at Black Hat be- along with an- another member of the team. They had co-authored a tool. And his response to me was very short, very curt. It was just, uh, you know, I see a lot of hand waving here, no content of any real value. And, you know, that stopped me in my tracks because following my talk, I had had numerous people come up to me and thank me because they saw things in there that helped them identify, you know, issues that they were having. In fact, one person even came up to me and said he had just gotten done writing an OAuth 2 uh, integration with, uh, I don't even remember what platform it was, but... And then he could see he had made some errors and he was going to go back and get those fixed before they pushed to production. And so, you know, to hear this principal consultant telling me that all I was doing was hand waving and not adding any real value to the industry was, you know, I'll admit it got to me for a little while. Um, On the flip side, though, I had a very, very good manager that I reported to. Um, he was my director. I was actually a managing consultant at the time. Um, but, you know, my director was really good and kind of stepped in and, you know, said, you know, and built me up. You know, he, he pointed out the, the feedback I had gotten. He pointed out that it was all based on real life, real world situations I had seen and that clearly there were people who were going to benefit from that talk in the long run. And, so I just tell people now, I, I look back on it really fondly. Ultimately, it was, it was a really good experience for me because it did kind of galvanize me in my own self-confidence to understand that there's always going to be those people who, you know, want to put you down. Um, and a lot of times it's out of their own insecurities. And at the end of the day, if you just focus on, you know, who did you help? Did you reach one person when you gave that talk? Did somebody find what you said useful? And if they did, you achieved your goal. And quite honestly, if the, if the conference accepted your talk, obviously somebody on that review board found your topic to be useful and thought it would be good for the audience. So, you know, generally those detractors tend to have the loudest voices. But they oftentimes, I've found in the industry, tend to be the minority. And we just have to learn sometimes not to let their noise filter into our perception. That's, yeah. I think that's advice a lot of, a lot of people who are either looking to give talks or have just like have recently given talks. I think that's really good advice for them to hear as well. Um, especially because, you know, as you said, like I think imposter syndrome is a little bit rampant in our industry. Um, I think uh, like, you know, like personally, also, um, I think sometimes people won't give a talk or like even try to submit a talk just because they feel that, you know, what they have to say just isn't like good enough or like is it cool enough? What prompted you to start your to give your first talk or like what prompted you to submit it? And um, what advice do you have for people looking to submit their first CFP? Sure. So, um, in my case, actually, it was the fact that my company that I was working for at the time was sponsoring the conference. Um, they had told me that they were sponsoring it and it was nearby. Um, and so I, you know, it made sense. Okay. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll submit to it. And yeah, I, I was, I'll admit, I was thrilled when I got the, you know, the message back saying that I was going to get to talk. And, you know, I, I mean, there's nothing, there's no better feeling than getting an email that says, Hey, your talk's been accepted. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, I had always kind of been interested in speaking at a conference, but I had never really seen myself as someone to do that because I personally, you know, like I said before, I've never discovered an O-Day. I, you know, I had under been to DEF CON and Black Hat and I knew what that was all about. And I knew the caliber of the speakers there and I didn't put myself in that same category. And so, you know, as I talk to people now who are looking at getting into speaking, they want to try their hand at a conference talk. I, the first thing I tell them is look at what's motivating you. Why are you motivated? And are you motivated for the right reasons? If you're going up there because you want fame and glory, don't bother. Um, you know, cause first of all, there's enough conferences these days. I don't know that it really leads to any fame and glory anyway, but that's not the reason you should be up there. If you want to go up and talk because you have something you want to say and you just have that un, 
undying desire to really express something that you think other people can learn from, or you love to share your knowledge with other people and help other people be better and do better, that's why you need to get up there. So if you're feeling that, step one, you're ready to go and you should probably be submitting a talk. Now, I wouldn't recommend trying to submit a talk to Black Hat or DEF CON right off the bat, unless you've got, I mean, hey, you may have something that's worthwhile. If you've got research that is really heavy hitting and your research can kind of make up for your inexperience in speaking at conferences, by all means, go for it. I would never tell anybody not to. The worst you can, worst they can do is say no. Um, but, you know, I do recommend that people start off with the smaller conferences. Look into all the B-sides. I mean, we've got security B-sides conferences going on all across the globe. And that's a lot of times those conferences, yeah, I, I'll say they're, they're a lot of times easier to get accepted to. Um, but that's because they're not expecting that necessarily cutting edge, you know, O-Day or, you know, brand new uh, attack vector uh, to be presented. They're, they're looking for things that are of interest to the people that are going to be their attendees. And so, you know, I do encourage people to look for some of those more local talk or more local conferences that they can go to. And, you know, it, it's a great way to network. Um, the last thing I'll tell somebody if they're creating a new talk is to not be afraid to reach out to experienced speakers and ask for some mentoring. Um, you know, if you've seen somebody at a conference who gave a riveting talk that you really, really enjoyed, reach out to them. See if they're willing to maybe take a look at your submission. Um, they might be able to help you write a better abstract. Uh, you know, a lot of times they're busy people too, so they might be limited in how much they can do. But I can say I've encountered very few people on stage who are not willing to offer up some time just to help somebody else get to where they're at. And so I always recommend, you know, again, the worst they can say is no. And then you just move on to the next. Um, and I know that's easier said than done. Sometimes being told no, especially when your conference talk gets rejected, you know, it, it's painful. That happened to me just a few weeks ago. I had a conference I was really hoping to speak at that declined my talk and it, yeah, it hurts, but you know, it's momentary and you move on to the next one and then you get excited when the next one accepts you and you keep going. Um, what is your personal metric for success? Boy, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I haven't thought about that for a while. I mean, I guess my personal metric for success is really just knowing that I'm making a difference. You know, I want to, I want to know that the things that I'm talking about, the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm I'm developing or whatnot are having an impact on our environment as a whole. You know, whether it's speaking at a conference like I'm going to be at next week and talking to business leaders, uh, you know, and trying to get them to understand that, you know, this world of hackers isn't something they need to be afraid of and, you know, help them understand how to reach out to their consumers and fix broken trust relationships. Or if it's at work and, you know, driving, a, a you know, the strategic vision of a practice and boy, did that sound managerial, huh? Um, <laughs> but truly, uh, you know, I, I do want to, I do like the strategy of how do we attack security from all these different angles. And one of those is from my employer's perspective, we have an incredible security practice to be able to be a part of shaping how we deliver that to the world is a metric for my success. If, if I see that I'm doing that I, and I'm able to connect with our customers and help make a difference in what they're doing from a security perspective, then I feel like I've accomplished something and I've been successful. Right. Um, so we haven't talked about this yet um, and we definitely should. Uh, so CDW and the security practice that you are the manager at, you all have a product. It's called ThreatCheck. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what ThreatCheck is and how it helps companies uh, succeed in their security? Absolutely. So it's actually more of a service. I wouldn't really call it a product. Okay. Um, but, uh, and, and I will admit, when I start to say this, it's going to sound 
like it's a sales pitch. It's going to sound kind of gimmicky, but l- trust me, bear with me, folks. I want you to hear this. Uh, so the threat check is ultimately a complimentary service that we do for our, our smaller customers. It's, re- it's really geared for smaller customers or limited scope. But what it is, is a completely managed assessment that takes a matter of a couple weeks. And we're doing what I would ultimately term some lightweight threat hunting. Um, what we're going to do is help give some of these smaller organizations who maybe don't have big security budgets and aren't doing a lot in the security realm right now, get a view into their network of, do we have things going on in our in our environment that are indications of a compromise or malicious behavior by insiders and so forth? So what we do within the threat check is we ultimately send the customer a, a simple appliance. It's a little one U box. Um, they hang it off their network, handing it either a span port or a, uh, a mirrored port. And we're just passively watching traffic. And we're leveraging tools from a number of CDW's partners. Uh, so we have uh, Cisco's Firepower with AMP is running on there. We also have uh, Nessus, uh, the Nessus Passive Vulnerability Scanner from Tenable. Um, we then use Splunk to kind of tie together a bunch of the analytics and create some really cool, uh, you know, additional uh, commingling of that data. And then finally, we also have Carbon Black's uh, response, CB response, um, as an offering as well. So we put this on their network. You know, the the as I said, it's getting a copy of the network traffic. None of these tools are sitting in the actual traffic flow. So you know, worst case scenario, if someone knocked it over or you know whatever happened to it, it's not going to affect their network. But we're looking at that traffic, and after a few days, we'll review it and we'll start to see where some of those. Uh, potential areas of compromise are. We might then instruct them, hey, here's a few hosts you want to probably throw the carbon black agent on so that we can investigate more in depth. But then at the end of it, you know, after that runs for about two weeks monitoring that traffic, we produce and deliver a report to them. And so it gives them this very uh, quick and easy view into their network. And we identify lots of different things from, you know, where they have lack of network segmentation to where they may have malware or where they have different, uh, workstations that might be using, uh, VPN anonymizers and connecting to sites in China or, you know, name your favorite nation state who is, you know, that we typically think of as evil. Um, you know, they're all out there and, so it's a nice way for us to put that in front of our customers. And it's complimentary because it, you know, it's a win-win-win for everybody involved. Our partners are happy because they get their, their tools and their capabilities out in front of our customers where the customers can see it. From CDW's perspective, we're able to deliver an assessment of value to our customers. They get to, you know, see actual tangible results and you know I have some actionable recommendations and we get to do that in a really easy to deliver format and of course from the customer's perspective they're getting those results and they're getting to test drive those tools and you know we've had customers leverage that as a way to build a business case for buying security solutions or you know engaging in some of our more uh traditional uh, security assessment services like, uh, you know, they need a pen test done or they have an application that needs to be assessed and so forth. How does CDW determine which tools to use um, among all the different competitors that exist? So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the magic of what we do as, you know, in an advisory organization. You know, if I'm going to go into a customer, you know, CDW's got uh, a ton of partners in the security space. I'm sure we've probably all seen the graphics of the millions of different, you know, product offerings and, and, you know, and in security in particular, a lot of those are very niche players. You know, you have like the, the carbon blacks who are focused on endpoint or you have, you know, uh, you take your pick. You know, they're all, all these tools are really focused in small areas. And so, you know, CDW traditionally has been a valid, a, a value added reseller. I mean, we're of our, we, we sold, we start, got our start selling computers and we still do, you know, we have that retail front, but, um, you know, from the services perspective, 
that a lot, we've got that experience working with a lot of different partners. And certainly from a security sp- perspective, we pull in a lot of different partners and, and competing partners. Um, you know, we, we do have partnerships with like CrowdStrike and Carbon Black and Cisco who are all battling for market share. And so there's not necessarily one tool that is, you know, arguably better than the other. Sometimes there are, sometimes there's capabilities that, you know, for one reason or the other make one tool stand out. But those solutions, it's really about understanding the environment they're going to go into and what the goals are for that environment and matching things up appropriately. Uh, you know, a lot of times what you see is one vendor's product works really well with this other vendor's product but it may not work with another vendor's product very well. Um, you know, and so, or, you know, one, you know, take like a, take a next gen firewall. That's one of the buzzwords out there, right? And I think everybody's firewall at this point is next gen, but, you know, take those firewalls. Some of them work better in a, uh, you know, a cloud environment where you've got uh, kind of that, that hybrid environment of some on-premise hosted things. And then you've also got stuff in the cloud and, and building those gaps. Others don't do so well in that type of environment. And so you, it, it's really, it's the understanding of what tool is going to match up best for this particular environment that we're looking to implement it in. So uh, on a non-security note, so on your LinkedIn, it says that you are a, you are a soccer state referee um, at the Wisconsin Soccer Referees Development Program. And I know that before security or like at some point, you were also an audio engineer. Tell me about your non-security activities. Sure. Yeah, I've got lots of hobbies. Um, so from the soccer perspective, yeah, I'm a state referee. I'm also an instructor and assessor. Um, you know, I, as a kid, I played soccer through grade school and into high school and, uh, you know, got away from the game and it was just being a referee is a way for me to get back into it. Um, I referee college soccer, I referee high school soccer and, uh, you know, club soccer up to semi-pro adult leagues. Um, so yeah, that's just, it's, it's a way it keeps me busy, keeps me a little bit more fit. Cause you know, running around on a field for 90 minutes and running for six or seven miles takes a little fitness. Um, you know, but I, I'm also a musician and so, you know, I, I play guitar. In fact, I get teased when I'm on video conferences a lot because people can usually in my office see the stack of guitars behind me in a rack, but, um, you know, and so part of that was I had a business partner for quite a while uh, where we worked for a production company. So we did live audio engineering and also uh, recording in a recording studio. So I engineered recordings and engineered live uh, audio production for, uh, you know, in venues as big as, you know, f- uh, six, seven thousand people. So we're talking, you know, a decent sized concert arena. So are these like methods you use to uh, deal with like burnout? Those are big ones. Yeah. For um, just, you know, getting out, you know, like I said, on a soccer field and running around for 90 minutes and putting in anywhere between five to seven miles in that game. Yeah. It, it's, it's therapeutic because it gives me a chance to completely forget about anything related to technology and just focus on the game in front of me. Or, you know, obviously music is a big one as a musician, being able to just grab a guitar and sit down and play for a little while. I mean, that's why they're in my office. So that when, you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated with something I'm working on or someone I'm working with and I just need that, you know, 15, 20 minute break to forget about it all. I can grab a guitar, uh, you know, knock out a few songs or whatever or just jam away on whatever. Yeah. It, it's very therapeutic and it helps, you know, keep me a little more relaxed and helps me get a little more focused. Do you think that if when you like decide to retire or leave the security space that you might just become a musician and like record music, do that type of stuff again? I would love to. I don't know how realistic that is for me. I don't know that I'm that talented as a musician. Um, I could see getting back into probably more the engineering and recording and that sort of thing. I think that's probably where I've got the the stronger talents. But um, yeah, I could see doing something like that once I kind of pull myself out of this security game. So what is something you see in cybersecurity that worries you? Um, 
Boy, there's uh, plenty of things, but um, you know, I, I think the big ones. There's there's kind of two that that bother me right now. Um, one is just the level of noise. You know, um, I've got a slide that I use in some of my talks that just shows, and people have probably seen this in other places too, just shows the number of security vendors in the marketplace. And it's, I mean, you know, you put it on a, a huge screen at a huge conference and people still can't even read the names. They just maybe recognize some of the logos. And so I think, you know, the, the problem with that isn't that we have these tools. A lot of these solutions out there are amazing. They do awesome things. And I'm honestly, I'm really wowed a lot of times by the capabilities of these tools. But the message that it drives for security leaders is one of confusion and one of frustration. And ultimately, I think a lot of times what happens is they just plug their ears. There's just, you know, I can't listen anymore to this. You keep telling me I need to buy this and that and the other thing. And every one of these things is going to, you know, make my life all better and secure everything and make me, quote unquote, unhackable. And, you know, that's not the case. And the expectations are never met. And so it, we're seeing a lot of that blindness come through it. It's willful blindness as a result of the noise that we as an industry are creating without being able to really work toward a common goal of, you know, securing systems and really protecting what is ultimately our lifestyle. Um, the other part is just, you know, some of what we see on the community side. Um, you know, you and I talked before earlier in this podcast about, you know, some of the things around imposter syndrome, some of the things around, uh, you know, the, the lack of a welcoming environment that sometimes is the case. And then it feeds back to the same thing. It's, you know, we're, we're all in this together. And if we can't work together and try to prop each other up and try to make everyone in this community better, we're going to fail. And, you know, being welcoming means accepting people of every background and taking their feelings and the, their experiences, more importantly, into account as we do different things and not having the expectations that everybody, and this is the key for me in terms of inclusion, not having the expectation that everybody needs to fit our mold of what we say a security professional has to be or what we say a successful person is or what we say a valid contribution is, you know, the reality is we need to learn how to see everybody's contribution and understand why those together make us more successful and how should we be valuing all of them. Do you have any tips on how to like filter through that noise? Yeah. I mean, again, it, it's actually, it's, Part of what got me started with that, this, uh, you know, inside out security talk, um, which is the, the castle talk. It's, you know, it, it's really, it, it's all about, we need to have kind of a framework to work from. And that's the other part of what I go into in that talk is really around, uh, you know, how do you think about security defenses? And I literally, you can take them and you can put them into three categories and, you know, and then, how do you build a structure to implement those within those three categories in a way that makes sense and, you know, sets you up for that continuous improvement? You know, cause that's, that's one of the problems we have too, is we try to bite off, you know, the entire chunk of the apple rather than taking those meaningful smaller bites. And so when we talk about how to sift through that noise, it's, it's going back to, okay, what's critical to my business? What's critical to my application? What do I need to make sure above all else is defended most? And then if I start there with implementing defenses, whether it's encryption, whether it's a solution from a vendor, whether it's some type of monitoring, whatever it is, when I start to put those into place, now I'm very focused on what is the solution that I need. I can drown out all the rest of it because I don't even need to look at it or consider it. I just need to look at those specific solutions and build that next layer. And then after I've got that layer in place and I'm ready to take another bite of the apple, I go and attack the next layer. And what does that look like? And we just keep building out. And that's that's the whole point of the talk that I give is really getting people to think that way because that's how you take all this mess and you turn it into something that you can focus on 
and understand just one key piece of it. Cool. Um, so on a lighter note, mm-hmm. um, what have you seen in cybersecurity that excites you? Uh, is there anything happening that is super cool, that is super innovative? Um, you know, definitely from a cultural sense, I love ultimately what we do as a community. And I know this sounds contradictory to what I just said before, but it's really not. I mean, as much as there is a lot of that underculture of, you know, people not being welcoming, at the same time, there are so many great people out here. I could run off a laundry list a mile long of great people that I interact with either at conferences or through Twitter or through both, um, you know, who really are all about how do we do this together? How do we make each other better? How do I just share the things that I'm doing and understand that if someone takes that and builds off of it and creates something new, that that's a good thing. You know, I mean, we as hackers, that's what we've always done. You know, from the very beginning, we took what other people created. We built off of it. We created something new and that became the new thing. And so it, it, you know, I, I love that as a community, we have that curiosity and that drive to really understand how things work and to want to make them better. I think, you know, 99% of the hackers out there probably share that same view of just wanting things to be better, wanting to make things better, wanting to make things different than they are today so that we can all just live a little happier day to day. And that, you know, above all else, I can't stress enough how much I love that about the security community. So final question. Um, so through your career, through InfoSec, from being a developer to a pen tester to a manager um, to being a speaker uh, and also being you know, a soccer referee, uh, what is one lesson that you have learned in all this time? And what is... like? And yeah, sorry. What is one lesson that you've learned? Um, this is going to sound <laughs> so cliche, but it, it is actually true. And that is... Live authentic to yourself. You know, we talk about it, be yourself. We tell kids to be themselves. And then we put all this pressure on them to be something they're not. And we do that to people in the workforce. We do that to people in our everyday lives. We expect everybody to be something they're not. And so as a result, we as people try to be something that we're not. And when you learn how to let go of that, and how to really get in touch with yourself and to not let those outside influences shape who you're going to be or tell you how you have to act, how you have to dress, how you have to look. That's when life really becomes free and you start to find true happiness and you start to be able to, you know, you become so much more effective as a person because now you understand not only who you are, but you have the empathy for all those others who are struggling to find themselves as well. Cool. Uh, that kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about like credibility and trust. And, you know, I think authenticity and credibility go perfectly hand in hand, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to live up to a standard that or to an image that isn't you, you're, you're essentially lying to the world. And if you're lying to the world, how can you have credibility? You can't. So that's, that's a very good point. Cool. So, um, Alyssa Miller, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, I really appreciate ha- uh, the, having the opportunity to be on. It's been my honor to be here today. Yeah. Um, do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, anything for our listeners? Um, do we not make enough already? <laughs> I think, you know, you, you heard about where I work. You heard about the talks <laughs> I've got coming up. Um, you know, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet for Circle City Con, uh, get out there. Um, and then the other one I'll throw out there is really to Diana Initiative. I'm so excited to be a part of that this year. Um, I know, uh, they're in their donation drive right now. We're more than halfway to the goal, but if you can look them up on Twitter or online and, and make a donation, even if it's five bucks, uh, anything that you can give is really appreciated and it's going to make the difference in the lives of a lot of women. So I'll throw that out there and say, Hey, please, please help us make this the, the most, uh, the most successful Diana initiative yet. (laughs) 
Hey there, thanks for listening. As you may have heard, Alyssa will be giving a couple talks in the next few months. If you're ever in the area, definitely catch her at Circle City Con this May or at the Diana Initiative this August. You can also follow her on Twitter at Alyssa M underscore Infosec. And of course, check for updates and sign up for the mailing list on Hacker Culture FM. This episode is recorded and produced by me. Special thanks to Alyssa for an awesome conversation, and we wish her the best at CDW and the conferences she'll be speaking at. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at Hacker Culture FM. And once again, thank you so much for listening to season one of Security Sandbox. We can't wait to release season two.